It's Romans chapter 12, and it's just two verses. But these two verses are so awesome. In fact, this is uh, at least verse number two. It's one of the first verses I ever memorized. Um, that doesn't mean I completely understand it. But nevertheless, when I saw that, I said, yes, this is what I want in my life. Um, so we're going to, like usual at Bordeaux Church, we're going to read one verse each. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just one person wants to do it. Is there a volunteer who would like to read God's word? Sure. Well, yes, I split the verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. So I think for all of us, at one point of our li- in our life, we've asked the question, what does God want for my life? What is God's will for my life? Um, no doubt you probably have thought this in terms of your studies. What should I study? Should I study medicine? Should I study something else in a different field of science that I study math and, or, or computers or whatever um, where should I study which university um, should I leave my home country should I stay in France um, questions about who should I marry even though most of you have this figured out um, questions about when I do get married where am I going to have a family where do I want to raise my kids All of these questions are related to what does God want? What is his will for my life? Um, But that's not easy to figure out. Um, And most of us struggle to really know what does God want specifically, concretely in my life. Um, Two examples of discovering God's will. Um, You can tell me what you think. Uh, When I was in Canada, I met this one guy and he did a missions, missions trip to the Philippines. And it was right after the Philippines were hit by that, what was it, a cyclone or a hurricane that completely devastated their country. And he went there with a team of missionaries to build a church. Yeah, great thing. And so he told us about um, this whole experience. But he also wanted to tell us about what he was going to do next, his next mission um, adventure. And this is what he told us. He said while he was walking in the, in the Philippines, he was on a road. And what does he happen to find in the road? An Indonesian coin. He picks up this coin and says, what are the odds? Me finding an Indonesian coin in the Philippines. And he said, this must be where God wants me to go next, to the Philippines. Um, Is that how we discover God's will? Does God kind of hide clues on our path for us to discover them and to come to this conclusion, surely this is the choice I ought to make. What about another example, less extreme? I have uh, uh, two friends, um, again, in Canada. A couple years ago, they got married. And obviously, the big question for them is, where are we going to settle down? Uh, Where are we going to buy a house or rent a house and live? And so they they showed me their list, and they had about four or five things that they told me that this was was for them God-opening doors. Um, The first one was cheap rent, uh, the second one, second one was she found a job. Third one was he could find a job. Fourth one was a good social life. There's going to be people around. 
people their age. And the fifth was it's close to family. Now, those are all good things. Those are all important things. Um, and so it also makes you ask the question, is that God's criteria? You know, in this case, we're making a decision. Is that enough? Um, what other things will we need to think about? Um, so that's what we're going to look at in this text. Um, but when you look at these two verses, you realize discovering God's will is inseparable from discovering how to worship God. In fact, what we're going to see is that these two things are connected. How we worship God and how we um, live for God. Make choices for God. The will of God and the worship of God are always together. And we're going to see how that's connected. So let's jump into it, our text. Verse 1. This is on worship now. So the first part. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy. I don't know if you remember, well, <laughs> I hope you remember Alan's sermon on this text. And Alan said, whenever you come to a, a therefore, you should ask, you should ask, what is it there for? In other words, why did Paul put it there? What comes before it? And one of the beautiful truths that we have um, in the gospel and for us in the church is that we have reasons why we worship. We have reasons why we obey. God doesn't just want us to come to him and show some form of external obedience, some sort of outward obedience. He's not just there saying, come here and get better. He's saying, come here and get transformed. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, there are always gospel reasons for our worship. It's what God has done in Jesus Christ that drives our obedience and our worship. When you read Paul, you begin to realize this is his method almost everywhere. When you read Ephesians, when you read Colossians, he spends the first few chapters explaining this is what God has done in Christ for you. It's something that's done. Before you were in darkness, now you're in light. Before you were a slave to sin, now you've been freed from sin. Before you were in a kingdom of darkness, and now you're in a kingdom of light. And it goes on. Guilty sinner, justified. Alienated, reconciled. Paul sets up um, these truths that had happened in Christ um, and which are the, the foundation of our relationship with God. And then the next chapters, what does he do? It's all about how to live in light of them. Because now you are freed in Christ, live this way. Think about your job. Um, back then you had slaves and masters. Think about what it means then to be someone who has believed in the gospel and now lives that out in their job or in the family, marriage, um, or within the church. Um, the gospel drives our worship. And so we see this exact same thing here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Now, if you remember, this word mercy um, is kind of the key word from chapters 9 to 11. Yeah, God's mercy in election meaning that there is absolutely nothing in us that deserves, that merits God's love. God sets his love upon us for a reason unknown to us. He simply decides to, and he does it. And so in our lost and hopeless position, um, we get to experience God's undeserved kindness. He has mercy on us. And so Paul is saying, because of that, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
So this is the first big point that we want to learn about worship. And it's this. God doesn't twist our arm so that we can obey him. He captures our heart so that we can worship him. He's not looking for forced worship. Um, He's looking for hearts that have been truly touched and shaped by grace. And for that grace to express itself in worship. Yeah, God doesn't twist our arm so that we obey him. He captures our heart so that we may worship him. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So now we have to ask the question, well, or what did I put here? What does it mean to worship? Is this, if this is the, like Paul says, this is your true and proper worship, what is it? So he says it's to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of sounds weird. In fact, it sounds like an oxymoron. Usually a sacrifice is something that you give over to die. But this is a living sacrifice. And sometimes we think, well, I know what it means to sacrifice stuff and things. Perhaps that's what Paul is saying. Perhaps he's saying something like um, the way we can sacrifice our money. Yeah, I'm not going to just spend my money on myself. I'm going to give it to charity, to the poor, to the church, wherever. Or I'm going to sacrifice my time and energy. I'm going to invest in people. Or maybe I'm going to sacrifice my career and do missions. I'll, I'll put that to a side for one year and I'll just um, fully, um, with all my time, all my energy, serve the Lord that way. Um, is that what he means? It's interesting. Paul doesn't say things are stuff that are sacrificed. He says it's you that is sacrificed. Offer up yourself as a living sacrifice. So what does that mean? What happens when, you know, he's using this type of language, when you bring an animal to sacrifice it to God? It means the whole animal is given to God. And so he's saying the same thing with you. Your whole life is given over to God. That is your worship. So think about what that means with our feet, for example. Yeah, the direction we're going in. What about our our, our hands, the things we do, our studies, our job, our eyes, our ambition in life, where we think the good life is, um, our lips, the things we say, the things we sing, our heart, our desires, the things we love, the things we hope for, our mind, our thoughts, our imagination. Paul is saying that every part of you is given over to God in worship. Do you realize the implications of this? This begins to break down the notion that worship just belongs to the private sphere of life. That worship is just me and God. When I pray to God, when I open up my Bible, um, that's worship. As soon as I leave my house, as soon as I'm with my friends, as soon as I'm at school, or as soon as I'm at the job, that's not worship. That's secular life. But Paul is saying that's nonsense. That's rubbish. It completely breaks down this notion between the spiritual and the secular. I just happened to stumble upon a quote, and it's not the best quote, but it's an interesting quote. And it's by a guy called William Tyndale. And uh, he's in the 16th century. He's one of the main guys, well, he's one of, the, one of the first who translated the Bible into English, not the first, but one of them. And the King James Bible, 80% of it or more, is based off of his translation. So he's a pretty awesome guy. Ended up dying for his faith. He was martyred, 
um, by King Henry VIII, was it? Or was that later on? I can't remember. But he, he was hunted down, he was persecuted. Um, it's a brilliant testimony. But anyways, he's, what, he, what he says here, he's coming out of this medieval age of theology when you have this great divide between what is spiritual and what is secular. Yeah, all this stuff that belongs in the church with pastors and priests and teachers. And this is what he says in strange English. There is no work better than any other to please God. To pour water, to wash dishes, to be a, a suitor, a shoemaker, is what it means. I don't know how you pronounce that word. Um, or an apostle. All is one. To wash dishes and to preach is all one. To please God. So he's not saying, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the missionaries, it's the preachers, it's the teachers, it's the elders. These are the real spiritual people. These are the people who are, they kind of belong to this worship thing, but these activities we do. Um, he's not saying that. He's saying everything you do, when you get up in the morning to when you go to sleep, everything within that is actually worship. Because we give our whole body to it. And when we think, you know, Christ, he died for us. He didn't just die for part of us. He didn't just die for our quiet time. He didn't just die for a time where we're going to read the Bible or when we come to church and, and we sing or when we take the Lord's Supper. Um, he died for all of you. All of you? All of you and every part of you. Now, of course, when we think, well, my whole self given over um, to God like that, you can begin to see why before Paul talks about our worship, you have to talk about the mercies of God. Um, if it's not the gospel driving your obedience, we can never do this. You can never do this. I can never do this. And what he's essentially saying, this idea of a living sacrifice, is that we are to die to ourselves and live to Christ. That's something we do every day. Paul's already talked about, he's already used this verb to offer in Romans 6. He's talked about our spiritual reality, that we have died with Christ, and that we've been raised with Christ. We've had a spiritual death, but now we've passed on to new life and a new identity in Christ. And now he's saying, live that out. Yeah, we have to believe in that. We have to trust in that. But live it out each day. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Die to yourself. Live to Christ. That's our worship. So now we, we see, and tie this in to what I was saying at the very beginning, that you can't separate worship from the will of God. Because worship includes everything in your life, what you do with your hands to what you do with your feet. And so we have to ask that question, well, how do we know what pleases God? How do we know that if I'm going to set my feet in this direction, this is going to be my purpose, this is the, the career path, or, or this is the person I'm going to marry... This is the person I want to build my life with. What are the things that are pleasing to God? So let's jump to the second part now. Verse 2. And we're going to look at this in two ways. So first Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. So kind of a negative thing. Then a positive thing. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what does Paul mean when he says, do not be conformed to this pattern of this world? 
Does that mean we shouldn't wear T-shirts like the rest of everyone on the road wears a T-shirt? Do we have? Do Christians need to go to a a Christian um, clothes store and dress like Christians? Um, do we have to be careful that our our trousers or our pants, like we say in North America, um, are not the same as other people? Do we have to have certain haircuts or certain hair colors? Um, essentially, do we have to not, not look like them? I don't think Paul is saying that. I think, especially when he uses the, the word world here, the original is age. Yeah? It's, just, it's like saying, do not conform to the age, to this aeon, if that makes sense in English. Um, the times we are in now. In other words, do not conform to the times that we're in, which means starting from the resurrection of Christ to his return. This time we are in. Don't just blindly um, follow the ways of the world in terms of what they believe to be good, true, and important. Saying, Don't just blindly follow these things. So for an example, um, this summer I was reading while I was on vacation with my parents a book on the sex, sexual revolution in America. Now, this is not just uh, America's issue. This touches Canada, England, France, pretty much anywhere in the Western world and beyond. And the whole, uh, what the book was showing, that why this is a sexual revolution, is because things like sex, marriage, um, and gender have been completely changed within a very short time, within a space of, what, 40 years? Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. Um, we no longer view sex as something that takes place in the framework of a marriage. Yeah, with contraception now, we now completely separate it from procreation, making babies. Sex now, in a lot of our minds, is something almost entirely just for pleasure. Think about marriage now as well. It's no longer normal to think about marriage between a man and a woman. It's no longer normal to think of gender being something fixed and determined. It's something you can choose, apparently. These things, which completely undermine um, the biblical view and, and the traditional views that you had in a Judeo-Christian culture, happened at light speed. In the blink of an eye, almost we barely even noticed it happened. Um, but it has. And they've completely won the culture wars, at least in America, and in my opinion, everywhere else, it, it seems. And so it begs the question, and no doubt you've already been asked by someone, or you will be asked by someone, what does your church think about that? Or what do you think about that? Do you still hold these traditional views? Do you still really believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? Do you still really believe that we shouldn't have sex before marriage? Surely not. Surely not. If you haven't been confronted with these type of things, you will be, sooner or later. And I think in many ways we have to make up our mind um, on what, where do we stand on these issues. I think what makes them so tough is that they're absolutely... They're absolutely irreconcilable with the Bible, with the gospel. There's no kind of either or. Um, 
sorry, once I get on a roll, it's, uh, I don't know where my notes are. So anyways, with that, yes, we don't like to stand out in a world like that. Um, but I came across another quote that I really liked. And it's this, because remember, we are the offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We are alive, spiritually alive. And uh, what's his face? I didn't write down. Doesn't matter. Uh, J.K. Chesterton? G.K. G.K. Chesterton. A dead thing goes with the stream, but only a living thing goes against it. And I think that's what Paul wants us to know when he thinks, don't just let culture, or culture, don't just let the world, this age, form you and mold you. Let biblical principles form you and transform you. Because especially now, more, well, it's always been the case, but more than ever, um, the church is going to look more and more um, cr- cross-cultural, counter-cultural. It's going to go against the flow. But don't worry, living things go against the flow. Only dead things go with the flow. How long has it been? How much time do we have? I almost want to say another thing, but it's kind of a, it's a big, big thing, and, and sometimes it's not fair to misrepresent things. But take as well, because I think it's important, this whole thing about desires. One of the main voices in our world and the times we live in is what's most important is what's in your heart, your feelings and your desires. You know, take that song, for example, listen to your heart when he's calling to you. Listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do. Who's it by? Oh, what's her name? Uh, someone said it, I think. Roxanne? Yeah. yeah. It's Swedish. Uh, yeah. And so that's very much the song of our times. Listen to your heart. That's your ultimate authority. And I think that's probably the worst advice anyone can give you. I forgot to write it down. Perhaps someone knows it off by heart. The verse in Jeremiah. The heart is deep, deceitful beyond all things. Utterly wicked. Who can understand it? The Bible says, left to yourself, left to our hearts. It's like being left to a broken compass. It's going to lead you in the wrong direction. Now, what's interesting, though, about the times that we live in is that perhaps before, we've always kind of kept checks and balances on our desires. Yes, we believe we can have good desires, but we also believe we can have bad desires. And a lot of the times, within a culture, it would be identified that some desires are bad and you shouldn't express them at all. But now the voice of our times is, you ought to express your desires. You are, in fact, called to express what's in your heart. And if you don't, you're going to waste your life. In other words... Our pursuit of happiness is no longer found in union with God or being reconciled with God. It's found in satisfying the self, with a capital S. We are not born to be saved. We are born to be pleased. And so think about how this ties into the sexual revolution now as well. If, If who I really am is my feelings and my heart, when you have same-sex 
attraction, it, it's not just a feeling, it's an identity thing. Because if I'm supposed to, to become my true self and to find true fulfillment, it's found in expressing what's there in my heart. And so that's why it's such a delicate issue, because it's not just feelings. It's my very identity. And this comes out so clearly, if that wasn't clear, this comes out so clearly in the gender um, issue. How I feel determines who I am. In other words, my psychology determines my biology. If I have a, so for example, if I have a male body, but inside I have feelings of the opposite sex, a girl, what's more important, my biological sex or how I feel? Our culture is saying it's how you feel, therefore change your body. And that's behind this whole kind of, in many ways, a postmodern worldview. It's saying whatever we feel, whatever we desire, we can bend reality to make it fit. Reality doesn't fit anymore with our feelings, don't worry, redefine it, change it. That's what we've done. That's what almost every country now in the, um, in the Western world has done. Just change it. Your feelings don't match with who you, your inside feelings don't match with who you are on the outside. Don't worry, just change it. And so that's very much the what we see in our age is that desire and feeling, we put it as a, in the ultimate place. That's what gives our life meaning. That's what we should follow no matter what. And the only true sin and the only true crime is to say, don't do it. All this for saying now, as a church, because after all, Paul is saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, it's just not kind of me and my Bible. Um, he's saying the ultimate criteria for your worship is not the culture you live in. Yeah, culture is not going to, can't be the ultimate factor to decide how we worship God. Um, and that's, gonna, that's what we see now within churches. That's kind of one of the frontline battles thing. Do we kind of follow, be on the right side of history, as some people say, and kind of make ourselves more open to the idea of same-sex marriage and stuff like that. Now, I know that's a huge issue, and an important thing for us, I think, in many ways, is not to remember we're to love our neighbor. I think Alan preached last week we are to love those around us, and uh, and we have to remember that we are all sinners, saved by grace. It's not about we are better than them in any way. Um, it's more of questions. As a church, how do we love people who um, have very different views than us? Um, how do we love them without changing what we believe, our beliefs and our values, just for the sake that they'll like us and accept us? Yeah. I think in many ways that's going to be the, the battle for churches. To disagree, but at the same time to love them. All right. So now we're getting into it. The positive thing. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is where, this is really the center of how I think Paul wants us to discover and live out God's will. When you receive a letter, um, what do you do with it? I don't know about you, but so we'll, 
when I receive letters, and it's usually around the time of my birthday or Christmas, I kind of put them there behind Peter so I can see them for a little bit. I'll read them once. I'll likely never read them again. And they might stay there for, I don't know, a month at best. But then I'll throw them out. Sorry if you've ever sent me anything like that. Oh, we've we won't send. No, I think, well, <laughs> Oh, you make me shed a tear. But uh, I think we all do that in a certain sense. I don't know, if you open up one of your covers, you have years of, uh, really? Okay, anyways. Um, but we, don't, we tend not to keep letters. Unless they're really, 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 they've made a mark in our life. But the same with emails. When we read an email, we look at it, we read it once. If it's really not that great, we delete it. We archive it. Um, but we have this tendency, when we read something, we read it once, and then we put it away. I don't think that's what Paul wanted the Romans to do with this letter. I get the impression Paul wanted them to read it out loud, to think about it, to meditate on it, for other people to read it, to hear it again, and then doing that, thinking about the different ways in which God has saved them and the different ways in which God wants them to live. I think that's what he, he's getting at when he says, um, do not be conformed to the power of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's by reading God's word, learning about what God has done for us in Christ, and this is it, letting grace transform the way you think. Letting grace transform the way you think. And so we're beginning to understand now what it means to make decisions for God. Think about the importance of this. You know, even just observe what we do as a church. Why do we put so much energy and emphasis and time into the Bible? For sermons? Why do we always have the text in front of us? And when we study the Bible, why is, the, why is it always about that? Of course, it's more. We eat together and we laugh and have fun. Um, but why is it about that? Because sometimes we think, you know, yes, the Bible... Um, when we're going through a tough time, someone tells you to read the Bible, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't really carry much weight. <laughs> and you kind of think, well, I'm going through a pretty dark time, what's that going to do? And I think we need to change our thinking about that. Um, we read the Bible to help us for when we're in that dark time. Um, we don't read the Bible to guarantee a good day. We, we read the Bible to help us face the day. Think about Jesus when he was in the desert being tempted by Satan. Um, you know, he quotes scripture. He knows it so well. And it's not just, you know, he, he knows the right reference. Uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, this is in the Psalms. Yeah, you know, when he talked to people, and you say, where is this? And they tell you, yes, it's Second Corinthians. And you think, wow, they know so much of the Bible. I don't think that's the type of Bible knowledge that um, we need to have. I think we need something different. So Jesus, inter interestingly enough, when he quotes scripture, he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I think that's absolutely key. It's not just about, I've read the Bible, therefore check the box, if you have a reading list or a Bible reader thing. It's, I read the Bible because I need to be transformed. And this is one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit takes his word and transforms me. So the more we eat God's word, as it were, the more we drink deeply into it, the more that's going to transform us. And that, the, more, that's, the more it's going to help us think about life. 
Let's, let's think about this way. The more we, we read it, the more we begin to think like God. The more God's thoughts becomes our thoughts. The more God's ways becomes our ways. The more the things that God loves becomes the things that we love. And the things that God hates, we begin to hate as well, namely sin. Um, that's what reading scripture does, and that's why we do it. It's not to be good Christians. It's to transform our minds so we can think biblically about life. So then that following sentence, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if we go back to that example of my uh, two friends in Canada who got married uh, and they were thinking, where are we going to live? And you remember their criteria. Do I remember their criteria? Cheap rent. They found a job for both of them, or the possibility of a job for both of them. Um, Friends. Friends. Close to family, and I forgot to mention this one, nature. Have you ever been to Canada, especially my uh, west coast, Vancouver? Don't bother with anywhere else. Um, <laughs> it's incredible, the, the nature. And they said, you know, they found all these things, and it was God opening the doors to them. So, what other things do you think they should have considered, discussed? Mentioned church, all kinds of Yeah, exactly. They're not Christians. Sorry? They're not Christians. Well, no, no, they're Christians. They're Christians. Okay. Yeah. But as Christians, you know, there's a, there's a reason Paul writes these verses um, for us. It's because it's so easy for us not to do this. Mm. It's so easy for us to forget what's important. In fact, uh, I'm going to make a couple um, quotes from Alan, one more at least. Um, but Alan said, uh, We always forget important things, we always forget our passwords. <laughs> and I think that captures it well. And I think that's why God gives us his words, because it's too easy for us um, to forget important things. So it, it shows God's mercy and grace to us. Um, so they're Christians. But yeah, exactly like uh, Pat and, and, and a few others um, said, it, you know, am I going to find a, a church where I, can, where I can settle in and where I can serve in? Am I going to find a church where I'm going to hear God's word um, preached uh, faithfully and consistently um, each week? Um, well, to the best of their ability. Um, am I going to have a place where I'm going to meet other Christians who well, as well who want to grow and become like Christ? Um, because to be honest, and dare I say it, you can find you know, a comfortable life and security and, and the job you want. Um, but if you don't find a church where you're going to grow in and think about your children, what your children are going to hear for the next five, ten years maybe, um, that's... that's I think you'll be more miserable spiritually, but you'll be more comfortable physically. And I think the opposite would actually be better. I think, even though I, I, you know, I got it pretty good here in Bordeaux, and I'm very conscious of the fact I got it pretty good here um, as well. But I think I'd rather be in a place where I have less comfort um, and to be perhaps in a city uh, less uh, agreeable as Bordeaux but have an awesome church. I mean, it's just no comparison. And so that's one of the ways in which we, we begin to think, actually, what's important? What's good? What's true? What are the things that should impact the decisions I make? And it's one of those things we can actually step out in confidence, knowing 
um, things like the character of God, His goodness and His faithfulness and His promises, knowing that He wants us to be in, in, in the body of Christ and to grow spiritually. And even if it seems like a big jump, a risk, we can do this in faith. And I think these are the things that, what it means to, to find God's will, what's, what's good, perfect, and acceptable. There's an, a really good book written by a, something young. <laughs> what's his face? Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. Um, yeah, it's outstanding. Sadly, I gave it away. But maybe Bordeaux Church will buy a few copies. But uh, so it's a, it's a great book, and in many ways, I'm just repeating what he said. Um, but he talks about this passage, and he talks about uh, Proverbs chapter 2. And, uh, and yeah, it's the same thing. You know, you want to find God's uh, will? Be transformed by reading God's word. And then he gives four things, you know, when you, when, you, when you are confronted with a difficult decision. The first one is think about biblical principles. Yeah, because obviously the Bible doesn't tell you who to marry, even though most of you have this figured out. Um, it doesn't tell you what job to get. But essentially, look for principles. <laughs> and he says this in this book, and it's a bit shocking, but it's worth saying anyways. Um, God, you know, think about it. If you're a student, you're going to become a lawyer. He says this, God cares less about you becoming a lawyer and more about you be- being a holy lawyer. Um, in a sense that he cares more about how you're going to be a lawyer rather than if you're a lawyer or not. He cares more about your holiness and your sanctification and how you fulfill your job rather than which job you pick. Um, now, that's not saying God doesn't care. And obviously, we want to look at the, the gifts we have and our passions, and we want the wise people pouring into our lives and leading us. Um, but it's not just about if I become a lawyer, it's how you become a how you live out a life being a lawyer or a doctor. It's not so much if you choose to be a doctor rather than how you live out your faith as a doctor. That's God's will. And that gives us a lot of freedom to realize that, yeah, we can mess up in our decisions. It's okay. Um, We can study and become a student. But the real question is, is how am I going to show my faith as a student? How am I going to be a a student that's holy and doesn't just give in to my friends around me and just follow the, uh, follow the crowd. Ellen, so way back when we did a, a table talk, if you, ever, if you remember those things, it was Friday nights and we would discuss uh, kind of a, a difficult subject and we talked about the will of God. And whether this quote, quote's from Ellen or not, you'd have to ask him, but it was absolutely brilliant. Because um, oftentimes, and I'll kind of, I'll kind of build it, I'll build it up a bit. Because oftentimes we, we look for the will of God um, in the strangest of places. And, you know, like that guy who found an Indonesian coin and said, "Aha, I'm, I'm going to Indonesia." Yeah, what's the connection there? That's not clear at all. Um, sometimes we look in the sky and we think we need to find writing. We need to look for little clues, little hints in our daily life, um, and we're gonna build this up and be like, "This is God calling me to a." Uh, pursue this. Um, But way back when, Alan said, God's will is not a puzzle to be solved, but a promise to be seized. In other words, God hasn't hidden clues in our daily life, and if we miss them, tompi, you miss out on life, and you're going to get your second best. It's not that at all. It's that we read the scripture, 
we think about who God is, His character, His faithfulness, His goodness, and what He's promised, and we make decisions on those, we act on that. Sorry, I don't think I finished uh, Kevin DeYoung's kind of four things. So his first one was search the scriptures. The second thing is talk to people. Yeah, because even what I'm saying here is tough. Um, <laughs> I remember when I became a Christian, I asked my uncle, how do we know the will of God? He said, start reading the Bible. I go, ugh. Mm-hmm. You know, because it takes a while to really uh, to understand the Bible and begin to apply it to your life. That takes time. That takes years. Um, and that's the thing. We can't do it on our own. And that's why God has blessed us with a church. Brothers and sisters, I urge you. Um, that's what Paul says. And uh, so look for godly spiritual people. Um, look for people who have a spiritual limp about them. What I mean by that is kind of like Jacob, yeah? They, they know what it means to, to wrestle with God, to struggle with Him, to make difficult decisions, and they come out after it afterwards with a limp, yeah, if you know the story of Jacob. Because um, these people have, have already made the decisions. They've already lived through a lot of hard things in their life, and they have loads of wisdom to share. And God has blessed us with a church, with people of all different ages and stories and experiences, so that we can learn from them. So that God can use them to bless you. So search scriptures, look for principles, how we apply God's word to our life, get wise counsel, pray. Because remember, you know, in the end, we want the Holy Spirit to lead us. The Holy Spirit has written scripture. We need the Holy Spirit to help us understand scripture and apply it to our life. So pray. Then lastly, make a decision. Go for it. Um, remember, we're not going to have heaven now. We're going to make mistakes. And we're going to mess up. That's okay. Um, but we can make decisions. God doesn't strip us of our responsibility. He gives us His Word so that we can think about life and make choices and glorify Him with it. So, God's will is not a a puzzle to be solved, it's a promise to be seized. I'll pray and then perhaps uh, we can have a time of questions. If not, no one has questions, um, we can pray again. It's Romans chapter 12, and it's just two verses. But these two verses are so awesome. In fact, this is uh, at least verse number two. It's one of the first verses I ever memorized. Um, that doesn't mean I completely understand it. But nevertheless, when I saw that, I said, yes, this is what I want in my life. Um, so we're going to, like usual at Bordeaux Church, we're going to read one verse each. <laughs> Or maybe just one person wants to do it. Is there a volunteer who would like to read God's word? Sure. Well, you guys can split the verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your practices as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. So I think for all of us, at one point of our li- in our life, we've asked the question, what does God want for my life? What is God's will for my life? 
Um, no doubt you probably have thought this in terms of your studies. What should I study? Should I study medicine? Should I study something else in a different field of science? Should I study maths and, or computers or whatever? Um, where should I study? Which university? Um, should I leave my home country? Should I stay in France? Um, questions about who should I marry? Even though most of you have this figured out. Um, questions about when I do get married, where am I going to have a family? Where do I want to raise my kids? All of these questions are related to what does God want? What is his will for my life? Um, but that's not easy to figure out. Um, and most of us struggle to really know what does God want specifically, concretely in my life. Um, two examples of discovering God's will. Um, you can tell me what you think. Uh, when I was in Canada, I met this one guy, and he did a missions, missions trip to the Philippines. And it was right after the Philippines were hit by that, what was it, a cyclone or a hurricane that completely devastated their country. And he went there with a team of missionaries to build a church. Yeah, great thing. And so he told us about um, this whole experience, but he also wanted to tell us about what he was going to do next, his next mission um, adventure. And this is what he told us. He said while he was walking in the, in the Philippines, he was on a road, and what does he happen to find in the road? An Indonesian coin. He picks up this coin and says, what are the odds? Me finding an Indonesian coin in the Philippines. And he said, this must be where God wants me to go next, to the Philippines. Um, is that how we discover God's will? This God kind of hide clues on our path for us to discover them and to come to this conclusion, surely this is the choice I ought to make. What about another example, less extreme? I have uh, uh, two friends, um, again, in Canada. A couple years ago, they got married. And obviously, the big question for them is, where are we going to settle down? Uh, where are we going to buy a house or rent a house and live? And so they, they showed me their list. And they had about four or five things that they told me that this was, God, this was for them, God opening doors. Um, the first one was cheap rent. Uh, the second, one, second one was she found a job. Third one was he could find a job. Fourth one was a good social life. There's going to be people around, people their age. And the fifth was it's close to family. Now, those are all good things. So those are all important things. Um, and so it also makes you ask the question, is that God's criteria? You know, in this case, we're making a decision. Is that enough? Um, what other things will we need to think about? Um, so that's what we're going to look at in this text. Um, but when you look at these two verses, you realize discovering God's will is inseparable from discovering how to worship God. In fact, what we're going to see is that these two things are connected how we worship God and how we um, live for God, make choices for God. The will of God and the worship of God are always together, and we're going to see how that's connected. So let's jump into it, our text. Verse 1, this is on worship now. So the first part, therefore I urge you, I imagine lots of you here are from a different country, 
And I imagine that lots of you here have visited other countries. And so that means you know what it's like to live somewhere where you don't fully belong, perhaps. You're not a citizen there. You've had to learn the language. You've had to learn the culture. And uh, I wonder what type of expectations did you have? Uh, perhaps if you were like me, before, before coming to France, I thought I'd learn French quickly. When you go to the store, you buy a book, learn French in three easy steps. Um, learn French in three months. Or perhaps you went to, uh, I don't know, England or America, learn uh, English in four months. And then when you get there and you realize you're not learning the language that quick, and in fact, uh, you realize you have to start life all over again because you can't express yourself in the same way that you could with your, with your mother um, tongue. And, uh, and so you get humili humiliated before people, your own self-image, you begin to doubt yourself. Um, you don't want people to see you this way because perhaps before in France or somewhere else you were a doctor, you were a student here, um, and that's kind of your identity. But then you go somewhere else and you're completely... We start life all over again. Sometimes when we don't have the right expectations, um, we don't endure, we don't persevere. Um, we get discouraged really easily. Um, and the same thing is for the Christian life as well, um, to follow Jesus. What type of expectations do you have when you follow Jesus? Do you think it will be easy? Do you think you're gonna make more friends? Think you'll make more money? What are your expectations? False expectations can lead us to doubt and to giving up when they're not um, lined up with reality. Um, so in the same way, when looking at this text, we're going to ask ourselves, what are the type of expectations that we need to follow Jesus? Um, it seems to me one of the key verses, uh, at verse 22, um, Paul shares with us, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So he just planted new churches in different cities. And this is the message that he's telling to new Christians, new disciples who want to follow Jesus. He says, we, you might, he doesn't say you might have some hardships or maybe you'll go through some hardships. He says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So he's setting up expectations. So that when they start following Jesus, they're not going to become discouraged. So we're going to look at four expectations for us this evening to help us uh, know what it means to follow Jesus and why it's worth it. So the first expectation we're going to look at, verse 1 to 7, is division. Expect division. So uh, Paul and Barnabas, and their journey from uh, Antioch, Antioch, I get the English pronunciation, to Iconium. It's a journey about 140, 145 kilometers. Um, this is a Greek city that attracted uh, many people because it was right along one of the trade routes. Um, today it's modern day Iconia, in, in Konya, something like that in Turkey. And so the first place that Paul and Barnabas go to is the Jewish synagogue. And it says that they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So and the, the, what we first see is that the gospel unites, but then it unites different people, Jews, Greeks, but then as we keep reading on, it says that it divides. 
It says the Jews who refused to believe began to slander the Christians and to spread propaganda, to poison the mind, to stir up others against the Christians. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Expect division. The gospel unites, but the gospel also divides. So what upset them? Before, when, we, when Paul started his missionary, first missionary voyage in Antioch, it says it was jealousy. The, the Jews saw the, the crowds coming around Paul and Barnabas, and they, they got jealous, and they stirred up the people to, to persecute them. But what do we see here? Um, we have a hint. It doesn't tell us exactly, but it says that Paul was preaching the word of his grace. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So it was His message of grace that the people were rejecting. We might find that strange because you would think that most people would want to hear the message of grace. But not always. Grace can either lead to joy, but it also can lead to anger. Anger because... To be saved by grace is effectively saying that you are so lost, so blind, so incapable of saving yourself, that it took the very Son of God to come into His creation and to die for you. In other words, that's not flattering, is it? <laughs> it's not saying, look deep, deep down into yourself and you'll be able to pull through, um, that you're good enough to earn heaven, you'll, you deserve it. That says none of that. He says you're so lost that God himself had to die on the cross for you in order to be saved. It's not flattering, is it? As you can see how the gospel is going to divide people who have spent their entire life saying perhaps I've, I've led a good life. God has to accept me. <laughs> Paul is saying that's a waste. God's not going to accept your good life. It's not enough. Like the uh, Stillman was saying the Ten Commandments, it gives us a standard. We don't measure up. You're not going to measure up. So all the hard work you've been doing and improving your character, following God's law, if you're depending on that, Paul is saying it's not going to be accepted by God. You need grace. You need the Son of God to die in your place. So for some people that will be joy. Other people that will cause anger. The mess, expect division. So if you want to follow Jesus, expect people to have a mixed responses to the message. And we don't like that. If, for example, if you're going to watch a film, um, if you're anything like me, you're going to go on the website, therottentomatoes.com, and you're going to look at the reviews. Why? If you're like me, I don't want to spend 10 euros on a film I'm not going to like. So we'd like to see, you know, 90% thumbs up or fresh tomatoes or whatever the rating picture is. And we want to buy into things that everyone accepts. What else do we use? TripAdvisor. When you're gonna go travel somewhere, and you, you wanna go look at what sites to visit. What do we wanna read and see? We wanna see five stars here. Everyone likes it. Go there. We, we, we don't wanna be divided on these things. We don't wanna buy into something that has mixed reviews. But you gotta accept the fact that the gospel has mixed reviews. The gospel divides, not everyone likes it. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you, you might become so enthusiastic about Jesus and passionate about Jesus, 
you got to be ready for the fact that other people are not going to be. I'm part of a volleyball club, and uh, a couple well, a month ago, um, we were having some beers together, and what do we talk about? We talk about volleyball. Why? Because we're all passionate about it. And it's great to be with other people and talk about what you're passionate about. <laughs> then what happens? And we start, getting, we start talking about the gospel. And I can assure you, I was the only one passionate about it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, trying to tell them, you know, why, it's, why the gospel is beautiful, why it's relevant, why it's impo important and coherent and, and all this stuff. And they're looking at me, uh, yeah, um, I, I just don't care. <laughs> you got to get used to that. You're gonna be, if you want to follow Jesus, he, he'll be the most important person in your heart, but other people won't care. The gospel divides. It's important for us as a church as well. <clears throat> Our vision as a church, a Bordeaux church, and also a Iglesia EBC, um, we want to plant more churches in Bordeaux. And we have to be ready that not everyone's going to be thrilled about that to see new churches um, start in the, in the city center. Um, Tim Keller said, the greater the effectiveness of a ministry, the greater the resistance and opposition. Not everyone's going to be thrilled about new churches coming up. The message of grace is not a universally accepted message. Expect division. But I love verse 3. What, do, what does Paul and Barnabas do in light of this division? So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord to confirm the message of His grace by enabling, with, by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. What do they do? They dig their heels in. Gospel courage. You think, how did they do that? Is it because they were strong, naturally strong, resistant, they had great willpower, they were naturally tough? <coughs> it wasn't any of that. You would have saw last week um, Paul quoting Isaiah 49, Acts, so Acts chapter 14, 46. Look what he says. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What was the source of their courage and their strength? It wasn't by just looking deep down inside and, and, and persevering. No, they knew that this was God's mission. It wasn't their mission. It was God's mission, God's message, God's plan of salvation that He was accomplishing through them. They knew that the power of God was behind their message. That's the source of courage. Really, courage is just another way of saying, I believe in God's promises to save people. Often, courage and faith are actually not that different. They're just believing that God is a God who acts and who accomplishes His word. But courage does not mean stupidity. And as we see, as soon as verbal attacks turn into physical threats, they leave and they go to Lystra. So verse 8 to 18, we see the second expectation. Expect misunderstanding. Expect misunderstanding. So Lystra was the exact opposite of Iconium. It was a backwater village, uh, an outpost on the edge of the Roman Empire. And as soon as they get there, we see that Paul heals a lame man. Now this healing is very similar to the healing that we see in Acts chapter 3, where Peter 
uh, heals uh, a lame person from birth just outside the temple. Um, and he runs in the temple, jumping and praising God. And, and then Peter gives a message, and people believe. Um, so we see something similar here, but at the same time, a lot different. So Paul sees this guy. He heals him. It's just outside of a temple as well, but a pagan temple uh, of Zeus. And then how do the people respond? They start shouting in their own language that the gods have come down among them. <laughs> you think, well, what's going on? Paul was speaking and he heals someone, and then all of a sudden the, the people there, they think that they're gods, and, they, and, they, and they, the priests come from the temple with, uh, with, uh, with bulls and cows ready to sacrifice, and you think, what is going on? This is crazy. Expect misunderstanding. People are not going to always understand the message of the gospel or even our actions when we do good things. Um, and it's interesting to compare this, uh, this part um, of Paul speaking to a very uh, pagan, um, a Greek pagan society to what we would have saw last week where he was in the Jewish temple um, explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture, he's the Messiah, um, you need to believe in him. Um, Paul's approach here is completely different. Um, he starts with what they know, the world around them. So he'll start with the creator God, um, who created everything that's good, and they need to turn from this worthless um, religion that they have of, of worshiping men in the place of gods. Um, so expect misunderstanding, and that's important for us in France, because you might think France has a, it's a, a traditionally Catholic uh, Christian country. They, they already know what the gospel is, and they've rejected it, and, uh, and uh, therefore... You know, we just have to continue to preach the gospel. And that's true, but at the same time, expect misunderstanding. Why? Uh, one time I was in a pub, and I'm kind of loosely connected to a book club, though I rarely go now. Um, and one time <laughs> I showed up, and there was only one other person there, so it was kind of awkward. So we just started talking about this book. But it also presented a great opportunity to talk about the gospel. And so he told me that he's an atheist. And I go, well, that's interesting, um, because I'm a, I'm a Christian. <laughs> um, I believe in God. And, uh, <clears throat> and he goes, okay. And I said, okay, uh, so you're an atheist, you don't believe in God, um, but what does that mean? What, what kind of God do you not believe in? Um, so when I say the word God, what does that evoke for you in your head? And he says, well, I don't believe in the type of God who is controlling every type of detail in life. He's controlling everything. He's He's micromanaging, he cares about every little detail in my life. He's kind of like a cosmic tyrant who just wants to control everything in people's life. He wants to punish bad people and reward good people. And I said, oh, that's interesting um, because that's not my view of God at all. Um, there might be some things that are right in there, um, but isn't it interesting? When you explain God like that, I don't believe in that type of God either. In fact, I'm just as much of an atheist as you are in that sense. Um, but when we read the Bible, when we look at Jesus, we see a completely different story. Um, we don't see, a, a, we see a God who has come down to us, and instead of just rewarding the good people, in fact, he rejects them. He says all the self-righteous people are not going to be the people getting into the kingdom. And then what does he do to all the sinners? He invites them to eat with them. He speaks with them. He gives them a message of repentance. 
And at the end of his life, when he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In other words, what we see in the gospel is a completely different reversal of what this person was telling me about how he viewed God, a God who punishes bad people and rewards good people. And in fact, the gospel says we're actually all part of that one category. <laughs> we're all bad people. We all fall short of God's glory. We all need to repent. We all need to trust Jesus. I said, it was interesting. So I share that story because sometimes we think people understand the gospel, but they don't. A lot of people don't understand the gospel. Expect misunderstanding. And this is important. Do you want to follow Jesus? Those who think they deserve heaven are going to find themselves in hell. Those who think they deserve heaven are going to find themselves in hell. But those who think they deserve hell, but trust in Jesus, are going to find themselves in heaven. That's important to remember. You are going to decide to follow Jesus. It's not because of how good you are. It's because Jesus has died in your place. So what does Paul say? Do you want to follow Jesus? So he starts telling the, 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 the Greeks there who are sacrificing them. He's saying, all that's nonsense. It's worthless. If you're going to come to God, you must know that there is only one God, creator of the earth, the sky, ocean, space, galaxies, everything. He's your creator. Um, he doesn't want our sacrifices. Um, instead, what does Paul do? He looks at all the good things that God does for them. He's a God who gives. And have you considered all the goodness, the goodness of God in your daily life? Every time you taste uh, a bon vin de Bordeaux, or perhaps in other people's case, uh, a good imperial stout, um, do you see God's goodness in this? Each time you walk through the vineyards with your friends, or a, or a picnic uh, sur les quais, or watching a sunset on a dunatilla, or playing at, on the beach uh, Cap Verde. Um, these are all demonstrations of God's goodness and kindness. The God who gives. He doesn't want your sacrifice um, so that you can earn, earn his acceptance and, and please him. No, this is the God who gives. This is the God who sacrifices for you. Um, Randy Alcorn has written a book called um, Happiness, and this is what he says. As I've walked with God over the decades, the sin-centered and shallow attractions of this earth have indeed grown dimmer. But the happy-making beauties of this earth's animals, trees, flowers, oceans, and sky, and of friends, family, good stories, great food, and music have all grown brighter. Isn't that interesting? That God, through all these good things, wants to fill our hearts with joy. This is the God who gives. This is not the God who wants us to give worthless sacrifices like that to him. No, this is the God who gives. Because all of this points to the ultimate gift of what God has given us, his son. Jesus, who sacrifices himself for us so that we can come into a relationship with God. This is the God who gives. God wants you to be in awe of His goodness, to love Him as your Creator, to trust Him as your Savior, to turn away of these other worthless ways that we try to earn His favor or to get into a relationship with Him.
Thirdly, verses 19 and 25, expect persecution. So we have this crazy scene where everyone's trying to worship Paul and Barnabas, and then the Jews show up. And what do they do? They poison the crowd's mind so that the crowd turns against Paul and stones him. And you see what's absolutely extraordinary here. The same crowd <laughs> that wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas are now the, the same people that are trying to kill them. They go from worshiping, trying to sacrifice bulls and cows to them, to actually stoning them. Expect persecution. This reminds us of the same story of Jesus. This happened to Jesus. When Jesus was entering Jerusalem, there were people there welcoming him, affirming him, praising him. But then the same crowd, just a few days later, are crying out, crucify him. Expect persecution. Don't trust yourself to how people initially might respond um, to what you're saying. They might completely misunderstand it, and a moment later, they might be at your throats. Paul is living what Jesus promised his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. And it's funny because uh, Alan just preached on this text uh, this morning, um, showing us that um, Paul's words here, you, however, so Paul's speaking to his, um, his protege, um, Timothy, you, have, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, um, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you want to follow Jesus? Expect persecution. Everyone who follows Jesus will have to bear with some form of suffering or persecution, um, whether that's physical, uh, in some countries, in some places, um, physical persecution or it's verbal persecution, slander. Um, you may not get a rock in the face like Paul, but you might get words thrown in your face, mock mockery, um, you might get excluded. Um, these things happen when you follow Jesus. Expect persecution. But you might be thinking, <laughs> why would I, why on earth would I want to follow Jesus after that, after what I've just said? Thing that you need to realize that everything that's precious and valuable, anything that's worthy of having in this life, is going to cost you anything. You're studying to become a doctor, that's going to cost you. It's some, but it's something worthy though, isn't it? It's valuable, it's, it's honorable. You want to study to become a doctor, that's going to cost you time, energy. You're not going to be able to do all the things you want to do. You're going to make sacrifices. It's going to cost you. Um, the doctors who are fighting against and looking for a cure for the coronavirus right now, um, that's going to cost them. It's going to cost them time, energy. Even the, the, one of the, the first doctors in China to, to make this uh, uh, virus aware to people eventually died from it. Um, everything that's worthy and honorable is going to cost you something. Um, parenthood, raising children, you're going to lose sleep. <laughs> it's going to cost money, it's going to be energy. 
it's gonna, it's gonna be a big part of your life, but it's worth it, isn't it? So you're gonna make sacrifices, you're gonna give up things, because they're worth it. And it's the same for Jesus. But the beautiful thing of the gospel is, is this, Jesus first sacrificed everything for you, so that you can be able to give up everything for him. Jesus has already done it for you, so that you can do it for him. Paul was struck down, but he didn't stay down. Have you ever felt like giving up? Just stay down? Why did Paul get up after that? They just crawled away to the side somewhere. But he gets up and he goes back into the city. And more than that, he continues on his missionary journey to preach the gospel. How does he do that? How does he keep going? Maybe you're thinking about becoming a missionary. Maybe you're thinking about, uh, you know, God's calling you to the ministry, to serve. Um, you might be thinking, how am I going to persevere? How am I going to keep going? A preacher named Art Asurdi, Asurdia, or something like that, uh, shares a story of, a, of an old preacher, uh, or of him asking an old preacher, how um, has he endured all these years? And the, the reply was, you know, Art, my dad once told me, never decide to leave the ministry when you're tired or depressed. So I never left the ministry. <laughs> In other words, don't decide to give up during your worst moments. Continue to persevere. Um, get up. Know that God's in this. He's behind this. Um, this is a beautiful mission that God has called us to. Um, it's by God's power. And uh, remember that He'll take care of it. It'll be okay. Um, don't give up on your worst days. So we all need to, uh, to heed Paul's words to the new disciples of Christ. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. As we grow as a church, as we plant other churches, we need to remind ourselves of this. It will be tough now, but this is the path that Jesus walked. It's normal to expect division, misunderstanding, persecution. It's what Jesus lived through. It's what he calls us to live through. There'll be suffering now, but there'll be glory later. Lastly, fourthly, verse 26 to 28, expect to be overwhelmed by God's goodness. So often, <clears throat> uh, missionaries, we have to write uh, letters to the churches that support us, and we tell them how things are going. So put yourself in Paul's uh, place here, you're in his shoes, and you're going back to the churches that have sent him off in Antioch. And you're going to report on the mission. <laughs> what do you think you're going to say? If we don't, if we kind of cover up the text there, uh, things were going good at first, and then there was division. Um, the Jews chased us out of town. They were threatening to throw stones at us. Then they eventually caught up to us, and I got hit in the face, broken nose, black eye, left for dead. Um, <coughs> you think a lot of things you'd want to share. But what does Paul share in verse twenty-seven? On arriving there, they gathered the church, the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's fascinating. He puts the whole package in God's goodness that people have come, they've come to faith. People have believed in Jesus. They're saved. They're part of his people. 
And that's what Paul puts all the emphasis on. This, this doesn't mean that we don't talk about suffering, so that we're recorded. I spent half this message, or the most of this message, talking about sufferings. Um, but it seems to me Paul doesn't want his sufferings to eclipse God's goodness in living for him, following him, serving him. Expect to be overwhelmed by good, God's goodness. In other words, that's the salvation that is spreading throughout the world outweighs any type of hardship that we have to go through. It's worth suffering for people to hear the gospel. And we can rejoice in God's goodness when people do believe in the gospel. So to finish, again, we must go through many hardships into the kingdom of God. Following Jesus won't promise you an easy life, but Jesus does promise you a safe arrival into his kingdom. Um, you need to have the right expectations. Not everyone's going to agree with you. Not everyone um, is going to understand you. Not everyone's going to like you because of the gospel. Um, expect division. Expect misunderstanding. Expect persecution. But above all, expect to be overwhelmed with God's goodness in your life. I'm going to finish by reading 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray.